0: Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, being joined by Andre Ganuella, And today we are thrilled to be joined once again by Holden Triplett. Now, those of you who have listened to the podcast for a while may remember Holden. We had him um, on the podcast in March of 2021 with Bill Priestep. Uh, They talked about basically counterintelligence, everything you need to know about counterintelligence. And that is really what Holden is an expert in. So, he, um, since leaving government, uh, he is a founder of Trenchcoat Advisors and an adjunct professor at Georgetown. Now, Trenchcoat Advisors does risk advisory uh, around the world uh, against nation state threats. And as I mentioned, he's served in the FBI for over a decade. Uh, and he's also served around the world in China and in Russia as a senior FBI official. He was also the director for counterintelligence at the National Security Council. And so, Holden, you're the perfect person to talk about anything that is related to counterintelligence. And so thank you very much for joining us today. We very much appreciate it.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure to be back. Thank you.
2: So, Holden, today we're recording on Monday, by the way, and we'll be releasing this episode on Monday. But today, earlier in the day, uh, we learned that Brookings president, uh, former four-star general John Allen, uh, essentially resigned uh, over the past couple of days. And I think around a week, uh, we learned that he had been under federal investigation because a court filing had basically revealed uh, that he had been lobbying for Qatar. Uh, and now I think that's a big no-no, but Holden, can you sort of tell us a bit more about this story, what was going on with General Allen and why it was a problem?
1: Sure, I mean, so my understanding what I'm reading and kind of in the, the uh, publicly available information out there is that subsequent to leaving government, he got pulled into um, a couple of different relationships in which he began lobbying on behalf of the government of, of Qatar. Um, and you know, which is can be fine as long as you have registered essentially yourself as a foreign agent. Um, as many of your viewers might know, there is a law called FARA, often abbreviated FARA, Foreign Agent Registration Act. Um, and essentially, it's a law that that, um, that, that trying to get that transparency. The whole idea is that if you've got a, if you have Americans, especially prominent Americans who might have been part of the government at some point, are now working on behalf of a foreign government now lobbying or in some other type of, you know, work for them, that you make it known. And so you, you have to register yourself. Um, he did not go through that. That's um, what I'm reading. And there's a, a little bit of a dispute about whether or not he was working on behalf of the government of Qatar. So at this point, it's all alleged. So we'll let the courts kind of sort that stuff out. Um, but I, I should say that the, the storyline, at least what's been conveyed so far, is, is not really anything out of the norm, um, especially for those of you who are familiar with, so the D.C. Uh, blob politics and, and uh, um, money sort of kind of flows through here from foreign governments. Um, this is a pretty common, unfortunately, pretty common occurrence. Um, former government officials get pulled in and uh, to work for foreign governments. I think that's
0: a crucial point, Holden, just because, you know, those who may be outside of the beltway don't have a good understanding that essentially in, in D.C. and many foreign capitals, you have former government officials that work on behalf of corporations. Organizations, governments, even, and that could one produce, you know, conflicts or you know subject them to prosecution if they violate the law. And so, I, I want to just ask about kind of how the FBI, in coordination with the Department of Justice and maybe other entities uh, within the intelligence community and law enforcement, how they approach uh, such an investigation. Like, where does this start? How do they collect information, and where where do they actually lead? How does this lead to a prosecution under Farah, for example?
1: Sure. So I want to be careful about, uh, not, I'm not going to reveal any uh, sources and methods. I'm sure that's not what you're asking ask about anyway, about from the FBI. Um, but basically, this is a really a, it's an old law um, that's been around um, for, you know, about 100 years now. Um, and, you know, it was used way back in um, the early days, uh, in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and then it kind of fell out of use for, for quite some time. Um, but it's been revived in recent years. Um, in, in recent years, and, and the reason being is the you know obviously since the the, the peace dividend of uh, post Cold War world, it's it's been it's become less of a of a threat per se um, that the government has spent resources. There's always been foreign governments uh, trying to hire former former individuals who are part of the U.S. government in order to um, help them get connections, make deals, that sort of thing. It's maybe not that surprising. Um, you know, individuals that serve their entire career, sometimes multiple decades. Um, in government, often have a lot of contacts, understand how government works. Um, and so they they may be looking for a second career. And sometimes that's in a, a um, U.S. company in which they might help them with their government affairs or other things that they're dealing with in a regulatory. But then also at times it can be with foreign governments. Um, and again, there's nothing per se illegal about this. But the point is that FERA requires individuals to um, to register So while we're dealing with the the particular case today, um, General Allen, where he was, um, you know, at least allegedly working for um, the the government of of Qatar, um, Farah can also be used in all sorts of other cases where you have individuals um, who are essentially um, spies um, for um, foreign governments. Um, So while there's a lot of other laws, espionage laws that uh, DOJ, FBI could use to go after Um, individuals who are spying, sometimes the evidence is is not there, or at least it's not um, good enough to meet the evidentiary standard um, that's necessary in court, which is really high to show that someone has been spying for a foreign government. Um, But showing that they've been working for a foreign government or they've been doing things for a foreign government without registering, um, that's usually a much lower bar. So often you'll see um, DOJ, FBI prosecute individuals um, under FARA charges when they just simply couldn't get enough evidence um, or it didn't meet the evidentiary standard to um, to prosecute them for espionage charges. Um, I'll, I'll note one more thing with that. I know that there's often, I read this in the media a lot, where sort of bemoaning, oh, the Bureau couldn't make their case, and you know, DOJ, and so this is a fallback. There's some truth to that. Um, and, I, and I think they should also, remember one thing, remember that um, that evidentiary standard is very high and is very difficult for good reason. Um, that doesn't mean that most common people re- looking at the evidence wouldn't say, oh, yeah, that guy's a spy, um, versus what they can prove in court. But the second reason they might use FARA is that the information they have proving that the individual is working for an intelligence service of a foreign government could be classified. And they may not want to reveal that information. Um, they may not want to throw it over the wall. It's the sort of uh, um, usually the way we talk about it uh, and bring it over into the criminal side of things. Um, they may, want, may not want to reveal the sources and methods um, that they use to collect that information. And so they may do a lesser charge in order to preserve the ability uh, to collect that information, um, but in order to still get someone taken off the board, so to speak.
2: So I'm just going to ask this question for those of our friends who are outside the beltway, because I mean, (laughs) when you hear about, you know, foreign agents and lobbying and all of that, I think there's generally a negative connotation that goes with that. For example, uh, uh, one person I would use as an example is the late uh, senator and presidential candidate Bob Dole, who uh, if you look up Bob Dole, foreign agent, you know, he has been a foreign agent for Armenia, for Taiwan, for a Chinese owned chemicals company and so on. And uh, I feel like typically when you sort of see those pop up against your newsfeed, the connotation is negative. But I guess, you know, my question to you is, you know, how prevalent and high up do some of these foreign agents go and is there anything unsavory about it in general? Like, in general, is there anything unsavory about the idea of a foreign agent for a foreign company or a foreign country?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's it's a really good question. And I think that it, one thing, it gets into all sorts of um, First Amendment implications, essentially what, you know, if people are allowed to um, you know take on these types of jobs, speak, even if they're lobbying for a foreign government, um, there's a fair amount of protections for that. So the most that the U.S. government can do um, with a lot of these restrictions is essentially ask them to register. So the idea is transparency. Um, I, I probably lean farther on the side um, versus maybe some of my law enforcement and intel colleagues on that. I would rather things, information be given out and let people decide for themselves um, if, it is a, if it is a concern or take it into account that say, you know, when Bob Bill was alive and he was, you know, talking on behalf of Armenia that people knew that he was working for them and understood that he was a, a lobbyist for them. Um, and then I would lean on the side of being transparent rather than trying to control or stop that type of interaction. Um, there's already a lot of protections around keeping um, you know, former government individuals from providing classified information. Um, so really what they're doing is, I mean, it's influence peddling. You may find people may find it unsavory um, or even amoral at, at some point, um, but it isn't really illegal. And I think for good reason, um, it becomes really hard to discern, hey, you know, is Armenia OK? Well, what about the U.K.? I mean, is anyone going to have a, a really up, be upset that someone might be lobbying on behalf of the UK, improving the relationship? I don't think it would be a surprise to any of your viewers to know that the U.S. government can sometimes be difficult to understand. And where do you plug in? Who do you talk to to figure out things? And in some ways, parts of the U.S. government might even appreciate that you have someone coming in and making those uh, connections so they can um, essentially move things forward. Um, but then it gets difficult, right, if you're talking about someone who is an ally or a, a partner, um, it's a lot easier when it's the UK versus Russia or China. It's a little bit harder when it's someone who's somewhere in between.
0: Well, I think that then raises the question about kind of foreign lobbying efforts. It's not really just adversaries. It's a lot of the times like allied countries, even under this General Allen uh, investigation, it's Qatar and Qatar is a major you know non-NATO ally of the United States. And you know recent investigations and prosecutions have been with the United Arab Emirates. Now, of course, there's like the Chinas and the Russias of the world. And so, Holden, I'm curious, you know, if when you look at these kind of issues, foreign lobbying issues, do you see kind of uh, when you kind of weigh them against each other, is it more likely adversaries or more likely allies? What's kind of the mix look like uh, when we're looking at these issues and counterintelligence?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, for one, I'm not sure that the government even has a complete optic on everything that's going on. And that's why certain laws like FARA and others um, that are meant to provide that transparency um, to help with that. But I, I think it's a really, it, it is a huge kind of mixed bag of um, allies, partners, adversaries, and everyone sort of in between. Um, you know, the the, the, sh- the reason, of course, is the U.S. has enormous influence um, all over the, the world. Um, you know, this, although China has obviously been, been catching up quick in many areas, it still is nowhere close to the amount of influence the United States has um, in a number of different areas um, and still an incredibly powerful economy. Um, and so as a result, you know, it shouldn't be any surprise that many governments around the world, that they, they want to know, you know, what the U.S. government is thinking, um, you know, and they want to sway that opinion if possible. Right. And for them, it, it may not even be a problem if it's if it's totally transparent to say, look, I'm working for the government, say, of Armenia and I'm coming in and, and I'm going to argue on their behalf. Um, you know, how else does the U.S. government get the full information of of what they need in order to make these decisions? Um, but it, the, the difficulty, as you kind of you guys have been bringing up, is that this can obviously be abused, right? It's one thing if it's transparent. It's a partner who's you know they're they're talking about things around the edges of hey don't you know don't sanction us don't don't put tariffs on steel to you know to Canada for example or from Canada for example you know because we're allies and that sort of thing. That's very different from say a China influence operation, which is meant to build build long term. Um, you know, sort of seeding operations into the US governments. Um, and they use foreign agents to do that all the time. Um, but this is the, really the challenge um, is that all of these very sort of um, very normal and, you know, like I said, people may not like them, but they are kind of very common channels um, can be exploited and twisted in all sorts of ways by hostile or, or nefarious um, nation states.
2: And I think one of the biggest things that, you know, to the layperson, right, to the average Joe, you know, on the street, uh, when they sort of see, I guess, the revolving door, right, of uh, public officials who may be political appointed at a certain point or like reach the level, you know, maybe they've had a career in the IC and then, you know, the president appoints them as deputy director of whatever, right. And then they leave because now their sort of affiliation is political to a certain extent. They go to one of these forums they have these, you know, foreign connections and they do all this lobbying and stuff. And then perhaps when a president of their party comes back to power, they go back in federal government. And uh, I guess a lot of people in America may look at this and see it sort of negatively. Uh, and, you know, when you're going to federal government, of course, you probably know this very well. You had to go through all those clearance processes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You had to down uh, all those foreigners you may know and all of that. Uh, does it not get complicated, I guess, for, you know, those higher ranking officials who may go back into government after uh, they've been foreign agents, essentially? Is there any concern once you've been officially a foreign agent?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, right? I mean, do do you stop being a foreign agent, right? And I mean, hopefully, you you should stop taking the money, certainly from a foreign government, if you go back into government. Um, But I think also there is a um, you know, there's a part of this that they've, they've formed relationships, they have formed, um, you know, contacts with a foreign government. And that obviously makes them potentially more susceptible. Right. They've already got sort of a, a connection there and a vulnerability that, that they might be able to exploit. Um, so, no, I think it's a really good point, especially as, as you talk about this sort of revolving door of people going back and forth. I, I don't think there's probably very few people. That listen to your podcast that would say that we, we don't have a problem just generally with lobbying, um, you know the U.S. government, you know, um, right now that is you know, out of control or it is you know not clear what's going on um, and there's all sorts of uh, backroom deals that get done all the time um, and, and that's I'm not here to disabuse anyone of that um, but I I do think that there again there, there can be you know a helpful part of this in the, in the sense that the U.S. government doesn't always work perfectly. And so there are reasons to have individuals who can come in and sort of disentangle kind of, um, you know, screw ups or bureaucratic backlogs that, 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 that happen. And, that, and in my own experience, that happened all the time, That things that weren't intended to cause ripples in relationships um, caused problems. Um, I don't know if you necessarily need a, a foreign agent to solve that, um, but I, I can certainly see the and the why someone would want to to use those. Um, but just stepping back from it, I mean, I think you get it at a larger question of like, what do we want interacting with the U.S. government? Certainly, if if there aren't the protections um, in place, um, these individuals, you've seen uh, members of Congress, um, former government officials who get targeted once they leave because they no longer have the protections of the clearance process and the others who sort of kind of regularly give them defenses. And so I think there is kind of an issue here of you know, once you've left government, it's not as if you forget everything and you forget all the relationships that you have. you're still extremely valuable. And that's where I think you have a number of countries, sometimes for nefarious reasons, sometimes just for you know their own sort of needs uh, targeting individuals who were part of government
0: and I think uh, another part of this is kind of the the corporate aspect of it because there's a, a lot of countries um that will target certain organizations, multinational organizations, even like political consulting organizations in the United States to do work on their behalf. And so, I mean, Holden, I'm sure as you know, now you work, uh, you know, running a risk advisory firm and a lot of the times I imagine you have clients coming to you saying, hey, you know, there's this interesting, you know, transaction or some, you know, sort of consulting gig that we've been, you know, asked to do from your perspective as a former FBI official now running this firm, how do you advise clients on kind of being aware of these things? Because I imagine, you know, anyone listening could be working in government at a think tank in the private sector. I mean, I think people need to be aware of that, you know, there are ways in which you can violate federal law and really maybe not know it.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think it's, it's a really difficult area. I mean, one, as I mentioned, you know, FARA is so old um, and there was there was very little sort of guidance um, up, up until like probably a, a year or so ago when DOJ put out a, a fair amount. Um, and there were a few cases that had been prosecuted that gave a lot of uh, clearance. So the problem was that no one really understood exactly where this line was. Um, there was a lot of sort of murkiness around it where they couldn't, and the law from a lot of perspectives wasn't um, expertly written. Let's just say that. So they've talked a lot about how do they how do they reform this. So I mean I think that the, the information and, and or how we kind of convey this to to companies and others to to is to stay you know, very far away from it, so you don't even get anywhere close to it, right? And then in an abundance of caution, if the relationship is so important that you go ahead and register. Um, There's some costs associated with it, but ultimately it protects you, um, you know, from a a potential FARA charge um, and sort of puts people on notice about who you're working for. Um, And I think that's probably the the majority of the cases. That's where we would sort of fall with individuals. The the other side to it though, is that I think we we try to help companies understand um, in any organization for that matter, that to, to look at what they have and, and in terms of assets, connections, former government employees, future government employees, um, all sorts of things that may be sort of in their company today, and then try to understand why those would be um, uh, valuable and, and why someone from an outside government, uh, outside the U.S. government, would want to target them. Um, and it isn't always for information. I mean, there's obviously a lot of focus on you know, stealing of IP and other types of economic espionage. But a lot of times this influence is not purely to get information out, right? It's to change decision making, to uh, shape perceptions about a particular country or about a particular company. Um, It can be sometimes to imperil certain assets or certain kind of uh, things that are owned by a company or by the US government. And so there's all sorts of reasons they might want to go after people or a company for influence. Um, You know, just just take a a kind of a a very different example. You can look at um, how China has tried to use um, multiple companies, U.S. companies, European companies, in order to sort of whitewash um, the use of slave labor, right? Kind of get more and more of them involved in it, more and more of them, hopefully, in in China's mind at least, push on the U.S. government or the EU in order to, you know, lessen the, the types of sanctions and restrictions that they have on there. Um, so all of these are sort of influence campaigns um, that a lot of foreign governments um, run against companies and against US governments or uh, you against US government. And so I-, I think it's it's important for companies just to understand that this this stuff isn't just Hollywood-esque, it actually happens. Um, and it's happening all the time, especially in DC. Um, there's a reason they call it the swamp, right? Um and so I think it's it's just a, a constant background, um, depend- and depending on what kind of business you have it may be in your foreground and something you've got to think about at all times. Um, So we just try to make increase awareness and, and help the kind of across the board individuals in the company recognize it when it's starting. So the company can make a a thoughtful decision about how do they want to engage with this? Do they want to be a part of this? Do they want to register or do they want to steer clear of it? So they don't have to deal with this at all.
2: So say like, you know, you violate Farah for example, and let's go back to the John Allen story. What, I mean, Obviously, every case is different, right? Every violation affair may be different in the circumstances, severity, and so on. But I guess, what are the implications? Are we talking like jail time? Are we talking fines? Are we just talking like, uh, you know, public image damage? Like, for example, on Allen, like, what's gonna happen? Do you think? Yeah,
1: it, it's. I mean, it's up in the air. It depends on. I mean, I think what they're they're looking to do. So. You know, Fines, jail—all all these are possible. I mean, generally, what happens is the DOJ will send a demand letter once they recognize that there's an issue, right? And sort of says, "Hey, um, you know, you haven't registered. We believe you are acting as a foreign agent for you know X country, um, and you should go and register." Um, and so, most people have a um, time in order to um, you know sort of fix you know whatever issue that they've got there. Um, there are circumstances where they don't. Oh, I don't know. In this case, if that if one was sent or not. Um, where they don't necessarily send a demand letter. Um, and my guess, and I don't know if that's the case with this this particular instance, is they do that because, how do I say this, is, the, the FARA charge is sort of the, the um, entry point for what might be going on. Um, what it generally means is there are concerns about larger activity, uh, larger activities that were going on between the individual, the American and the foreign government. Um, I don't know if that's the case um, in this particular case. Obvi- obviously this is gonna get sorted out in court um, but when there are sort of larger things, it hasn't just been, hey, they've been you know, operating and, and lobbying for certain business deals or that sort of thing, but something much more potentially nefarious um, and something that set up longer term sort of influence or really that harms the US government or the, uh, the um, United States in general. Um, that can be where they, they, they don't send the demand letter and they take action sort of much more directly. Um, and that appears to be what may have happened here uh, all the facts haven't all come out at this point. I
0: mean, we will absolutely learn more. But if you kind of take a step back and think about, you know, why kind of this happens and who is susceptible to this kind of, um, you know, engagement by a, a foreign principal, And I think a foreign principle, right, it's not just governments. It can, it can be a former political official. It could be a, any, really any foreign individual, right? I mean, I think foreign principles are very, in, you know, legal definition. It's a very broad term, but we don't need to get into that. Um, but the, my question, Holden, kind of revolves around, I guess, when we, when we think about, I guess, technology and social media companies. So there's a lot of you know, misinformation out there. I mean, I, I think a, a good example is, is Myanmar and the peddling of misinformation as it you know, pertains to the Rohingya people. Um, and as you mentioned, fair is old. I mean, it was created in 1938 to combat Nazi propaganda. Um, is there a you know a way in which that people could be inadvertently violating FARA and may, may not be reporting because of it? You no, know, you could be acting on behalf of a foreign principal uh, by engaging in, again, it's in, engaging in political activities. And I mean, that's really, again, a, another broad kind of legal term. And so um, do you think FARA needs to be updated in some way to account for technology change, but also kind of, I guess, the expanded use of, of fair prosecutions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my personal opinion is is it, it could do, do a lot of good if they had a lot of more updates to the law itself or just some more guidance about how it was going to be prosecuted, right? And DOJ has done a bit of that to make it clear that certain circumstances they're less concerned about than others. Um, but there's still a lot of work um, that could be done. And I, I think you kind of hit at it, right? It, it, it's, you know, individuals who are, you know, maybe working as for it, a human rights, um, you know, organization, or they're even working for you know a, a human rights organization of a foreign government, say, and then they may be going and meeting with U.S. officials or writing articles that then impacts the U.S. public, right? And they might be getting paid a, even a meager salary by this NGO that's in another country. Um, that could put them uh, technically um, in in violation. Um, you know, I I feel pretty confident that that in most circumstances DOJ has no interest in prosecuting those cases. Um, be, and again, just my opinion on this, because it, it simply isn't um, having as, as much of an impact on the U.S. government or the U.S. population in general. But I think you, you hit a really good point, which is the law is not particularly clear. And so what can end up happening, I think, is that a lot of people just steer clear of ever engaging um, with foreign entities, foreign organizations, and then even connections back to the United States or the public. And we actually end up hurting Sort of the way information kind of gets transferred back and forth, relationships that could have gotten set up because we have this really kind of uh, murky and well and and like ill-defined um, sort of set of laws um, that discourages a, a wide breadth of of behaviors, not all of which I think people would find problematic. Um, and so I, I think that they certainly could update that. And I, I think your your point about technology is is a really a good one. Um, you know, and the idea that how easy I mean let's say I was being paid by a foreign government to to help them with something. um, And then I tweet out about that. Um, Essentially, then I'm communicating information to the public that could impact them. Um, I'm working for a foreign government. um, You know, and again, is this the type of thing that uh, the law was intended in order to um, keep from happening? Um, You know, I I think those are good questions to ask. And it's something that's going to I mean, this this sort of gets at the, the broader issues, technology um, causes um, with lots of different laws, um, especially on the sort of First Amendment side. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot that they could, they could do. Um, you know, there was just a, a recent update of of CFIUS, um, which is sort of kind of analogous to um, to Fair in many ways. That it looks at foreign investments, um, and it was there was a, a law called FIRMA um, that updated CFIUS, um in the last couple of years um, because Cipius was a an older law that had been used in the past but needed a lot of um updates to really kind of conform to the current environment. So I know there's been some talk about using FARA and to, um, to updating FARA. Um, and I think that's it's, unfortunately it's it's a little bit stalled because it's um, it's kind of a it is a difficult area to disaggregate and figure out where on the right side do we want to allow things and and where do, where do we not. Um, but I, I think the environment would would
2: benefit greatly by by putting a lot more clarity there. And, you know, speaking of clarity, uh, not to shift the topic a bit, but, you know, when we're talking about the motivations of some of these foreign agents, for example, we did mention, you know, we have the allies, we have the uh, iffy countries, I guess, and we have uh, our adversaries. Uh, For the allies, I mean, I understand, I guess, you know, what would motivate someone, a former high official in America to lobby for like, say, the UK or France or so on, right? We have very friendly relations. We've been through a lot of stuff together in terms of foreign policy and global crises and so on. But when we're talking about a country like Qatar or one of those like iffy countries that, I mean, speaking very generally have some shady backgrounds and all of that stuff, you're always sort of hearing about it. I mean, is it just the money that's motivating some of these foreign agents or is there something else? Like, is there some intrinsic motivation, I guess? What have you sort of observed in general?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think money has is a huge um, motivator for a lot of people. I mean, you guys are probably familiar with the old acronym, MICE, you know, that looks at motivations for people who become, um, uh, you know, Spies or, or work as agents of an intelligence officer. Mics, you know, money, um, ideology, coercion, and ego or, or excitement. Um, and the more updated one is Mince's, which includes N for nationalism um, and S for sex. Um, really, the, the kind of the, the the two key ways that intelligence services use to motivate people are sacks of, of, of cash and uh, romantic relationships. It's a nice way to refer to it. Um, but yeah, I mean. I, I think money is a huge motivator um, for a lot of individuals They get out of government. They, sometimes they feel like, um, you know, they've been, um, you know, taking a lesser salary for decades um, and now it's their chance essentially to, um, you know, really kind of reap um, the, the expertise that they have and they feel like they deserve it. Um, And of course they can kind of play all sorts of games of cognitive dissonance saying like, Oh, well, I mean, I may be working for, you know, the Chinese in terms of doing these lobbying or or something like that, but I'm not really doing that much. You know, I'm not really changing anything. This is what everybody does. And so it's just influence peddling. And so I I think that kind of plays into it. Um, But, you know, for the, for the ones that are just purely kind of business transactions, it's it's probably just money, but the ones that really start to bleed much more into an intelligence operation um, where they're really looking to influence and it's part, you know, that using this individual might be one piece of a much larger operation. Um, the, the intelligence services are usually a little bit more on, um, well, they, they work on a couple of different levels for motivation. And one is they, they will often just fetch these these uh, former government officials. Uh, people talk about it in um, in China all the time, uh, in, at, you know, in terms of US former US government officials showing up in China. And, you know, receiving the red carpet treatment, and, and obviously this is in days before things had kind of really gone um, south between the, on the relationship, but former government officials would show up, they'd be fed it and, you know, taking a meals and, um, you know, all these sort of just trappings of making the individual feel important and um, that their expertise is really valued. Um, and that can really motivate people. Um, you, would, you wouldn't think that um, someone as sophisticated and that far along in their career would be motivated by things like that, but they often are. Um, and so I think sometimes they have this, you know, they've lost the, the excitement of being in government. They've lost all of the, especially someone who is, you know, high up in, say, um, the you know, military organization, all the respect and admiration that they get from their, their counterparts or their, and their underlings. And that's all gone. All of a sudden, it's all gone. And to have that, you know, brought back to them by, uh, you know, another state that says they're important, they're doing great work, and they, they're it's meaningful work, and they're they're, you know, really smart and helpful individuals. That can be extremely motivating for people.
0: So Holden, um, to kind of segue into you know counterintelligence more broadly, are there any kind of high-ranking officials that you can think of who have been targeted by counterintelligence operations by you know foreign intelligence services? I at least from to me, I can think of. The former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, who, as you know, has done a lot of lobbying since leaving government. Uh, do, are there
1: any examples you can think of in the United States or maybe elsewhere? Uh it's a good question. I have to Be careful because I think a lot of the ones I know haven't necessarily come out at this point. So, um, well, stay away I mean, from those. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of examples. I mean, a lot of former[s]. I mean, like Gerhard Schroeder is a, is a really great example of someone who's having difficulties, um, you know, right now because of this ongoing relationship. Um, You know, I mean, it's so much more common than I think people fully understand um, in the sense that there's just, you know, they get targeted um, by, um, you know, intelligence services, by the Russians, by the Chinese, as soon as they leave government um, because they no longer have the protections that are there. Um, But there's a number of, you know, and high level government officials who are currently in these spaces have been targeted in the past. and i think of dean stanton and, and from um, years past and it was at the, i believe at the treasury department um that, but there's a number of of individuals um you know that are that are part of and it starts to bleed a little bit as an influence operation is is a, a straight kind of recruitment where they're carrying out particular um sort of acts of, of for the uh, foreign power um but it is kind of constantly here i mean i i think maybe listeners would be surprised to know um But it it is, I mean, the number of countries that are trying to conduct influence operations um, in D.C., just for example, is astounding. I mean, we're talking in the hundreds, right? So this isn't just the ones that we hear about um, are kind of the big players, the ones that the U.S. government is most concerned about. But the number of people who are sort of peddling money around here for influence and trying to get decisions to go their way, um, it's enormous. Um, And that happens in other capitals as well, in Brussels, for example. Um, So it is a pretty common, and you know, obviously the line between that and sort of pure corruption gets a little bit blurred at times. Um, But it's something that all US government officials should be um, hyper aware of and be cognizant of and thinking about it. The the issue becomes, I mean, as you all pointed out, is that there's a number of, you know, kind of relationships post-government, be it with a, a private sector organization or with, you know, potentially with other types of nonprofits, that sort of thing, where that government's officials contacts, their knowledge of the government is what they're after, right? That's the expertise that they have that they bring to the table. So how do you monetize that, right, without kind of running afoul and essentially, you know, harming the US government by doing something nefarious for another country? Um, It can get really complicated. I mean, what would be wonderful is improve FARA and that the U.S. government, you know, before any U.S. officials leave, give training um, to all U.S. officials at all levels It says, hey, you know, these five things, you're probably good. These five things stay, you know, as far away from as possible. So they make it very clear to them about what is acceptable and, and what is not. Um, that's not to say there's a lot of ignorance, but I, I think that people don't necessarily appreciate Um, how much of a problem it really could be for them and they they can get themselves into sticky situations without intending to.
2: I mean, when we're talking about that training and that education, you know, if you're starting in federal government as a young lad and you're going through all of these clearance issues or you're going to state or the IC and so on, I assume we're getting a hell of a lot of training on how not to get into these sticky situations. But I guess the issue comes in when you have maybe political appointees, uh, people who may join the Senate and then you know, transition into something federal government, of uh, people who are appointed by the White House, right, who are not, who haven't been rooted in federal government and are coming in. And oftentimes, I guess there would be coming in in a very expedited uh, sort of a time timeframe, uh, I mean, is training adequate for those types of folks, I guess, right? Because if they're coming in very quickly, very, you know, in a political appointment, I would imagine that they would be more at risk of not necessarily, you know, engaging in nefarious activities, but being uh, more vulnerable to uh, participating in those, maybe perhaps accidentally or just ignorantly.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, and you think about also, many of them are appointed because of their connections that they have and not just connections they have in the, you know, in the US sphere. It could be worldwide. Um, uh, so, I mean, train awareness, I mean, some some kind of, it, it's probably not enough in and of itself. I mean, that's why we need sort of enforcement along with it. But if you think about the layers of, of, of things they need in order to protect it, right? The first is sort of, you know, you think about screening like individuals that have, you know, a, a preponderance of connections to um, problematic foreign governments. Let's call that that maybe those are the type of people we don't want in our U.S. government, right? Um, sometimes it can be very helpful, but individuals that have spent their career working closely with the Russias and Chinas of the world—they're um, not always the, the maybe shouldn't always be the top choice. They could be depending on the position that they're in um, and what and how they worked with them. But thinking about that as sort of initial level of screening and then building in an awareness um, piece of this to ensure that the individuals are aware of where the law is, of where they you know could run afoul. And knowing that, like, look, as, as important as you, you know, as your job is and your, what you did before, it's going to be you're going to become even more heavily targeted in the future um, during government and outside of government afterwards. And then kind of look at ways that even if that kind of fails, as you've got investigative ways in order to find these people, and then you've also got an ability to limit, you know, limit damage and sort of think of those four layers as a way to kind of protect um, the U.S. government. I think we've kind of got a, a pretty good amount of money spent on the investigative part. I don't think we have as much really spent on the preventative sort of, you know, screen, find vulnerabilities and issues, and find indiv- and then making sure individuals are aware of these things. Um, you'd be surprised, maybe I, or maybe you wouldn't, but by the number of conversations I've had with individuals who. You know, very, very sophisticated in all aspects of their life. But when you start to talk to them about intelligence services, security services, how they operate, how they exploit and use people, use their vulnerabilities, they they often don't believe it. There's a certain amount of naivete, um, I think, among the American public, um, which is nice. They don't have to deal with it um, in the United States most of the time. Um, but it's it's a naivety that, frankly, you don't find, at least we don't find when talking to our clients from, from Europe or from East Asia, um, who are ensconced in this type of environment and deal with intelligence and security services on you know almost a daily basis. They are much more savvy to this. Um, they understand it implicitly that this threat is out there. Um, so this is something I think, um, you know, in U.S. private industry, the government, we're just going to have to become a lot more savvy and and get a lot more um. Sort of background in this, um, if we're going to really kind of ensure that it doesn't uh, sort of overwhelm us.
0: It's a fabulous point. That's exactly why you know we are so happy to have you uh, on the podcast today. Um, And no, we have most of our listeners are are U.S. you know based, but you know we have listeners elsewhere, and so um, you know a lot can be learned from this conversation. Holden, I want as we kind of wind down today's conversation, I want to ask about counterintelligence threats that you're really focused on right now. I mean, we talked about a lot of threats. Uh, in March of 2021, when you and Bill were on. But since then, are are there any in particular that you've been kind of laser focused on?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, and it's sort of thematically very similar. Um, What's continuing to happen, and I know this is probably, maybe we're just beating this drum, but it's important, is that there's just been a really significant shift. And you're starting to see this kind of picked up in the media. The Economist has written a number of articles almost every every week for the past couple of weeks here, um, focusing on the fact that um, businesses are dealing with um, these types of nation state activities, right? Um, I don't know if we made this, you know, the analogy, but it's one we talk about commonly, you know, if you wanted to uh, steal cutting edge space technology 40 years ago, you went to NASA, right? That's where you would find it. If you did it today, you'd be looking at SpaceX or Blue Origin or, you know, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, or that type of thing. You'd be looking at a private sector organization, um, so despite the fact that they may have pretty good you know, physical security and maybe fairly good cybersecurity, they generally don't have a great kind of program for understanding how a nation state may come after them. Um, and they have the assets that nation states want. Um, and so we are just, as much as I saw in the government, I've been really amazed by how much more I'm seeing now. And that it's, it's really the sort of old adage, right? There, I think this is former Director Comey talked about this, right? There's two types of companies. You know, those who have been and I use China in this example, but you could really use any. It was like those who have been hacked by China and know it. And then those who have been hacked by China and don't know it, um, meaning that basically everyone at this point has probably experienced it. Uh, every major company, um, they just may not be aware of it. Um, and so that really has been borne out. The more I've been outside of government um, is just running into all different types of companies, startups, Fortune 50 um, companies. And they essentially all have issues um, with nation states, intelligence services, um and are struggling with it um the biggest problem is they just simply don't recognize that it's there um that it's a threat that they're going to have to deal with many of them are just very upset that the us government isn't handling all of these things um we try to explain it's overwhelming there's too many and you're going to have to take this on like you've taken on other sorts of risk and security um management um and i think they're slowly getting there but that's something that i i really hope accelerates in the near future because i i, I unfortunately i think we're we're, we're far behind
2: well on that note, uh, Holden, thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, we really appreciate the conversation all you know about these foreign agents, especially with the General John Allen a story coming out just breaking today. Uh, and of course uh, you know your warnings are very prescient and uh, hopefully people will heed them. Thank you it's my pleasure to be here. appreciate it guys.